Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of So Are Married a Horror Fan. This is episode number 24. Woo! Me, 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 me. And it's going out on an, an actual UK, US shared bank holiday. It's motherfucking Memorial Day right now in America. And it's Bank Holiday Monday here in the UK. Yes. Um, Quiet Place 2 just came out in America this weekend. So I hope everyone's having a great Memorial Day. Safe Memorial Day in America. I don't know what the state laws are currently at the moment. I have no idea. I think in certain states in America, if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Um, Other states are complying with the rules as they have been. Um, Over here, obviously, things are starting to kind of be more normal. All the shops, pubs, everything are open now. Obviously, mask policy. But yeah, whatever you guys are getting up to on this day off from work, I hope you guys are staying safe and having a great time. Um, Also, don't forget to go and like check out our last week's episode on Army of the Dead and our bonus episode on Psycho Gorman. I know you guys did. But just a reminder that those episodes are there and they're great and we love them. Um, So what are we covering today? We're covering... Our names first, probably. We probably. Should do that. Uh, I, as always, am Simon. And I'm Lee. So today we're covering... Well, first of all, I have a question for everybody. Do you read Start Again? Mate. <laughs> we are covering the 1994 movie In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, this is a very special episode. This is uh, John Carpenter's first appearance on the podcast. It is indeed. He's not. He's not actually going to be on the podcast. But this <laughs> you is the... imagine. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be talking right now. You'd I'd just be... be like in a corner crying, and I'd yeah. be trying to hold a conversation with like, John Carpenter. Be like, I know nothing about any of your films. Like, this is like don't yeah. mind me. Just the greatest. Still living horror director. I say still living because we all know Wes Craven's the greatest horror director of all time. But John Carpenter is the greatest still living horror director of all time. Yeah, it'd be an in- it would be an interesting day if that were to happen because I would literally have to hold a conversation with a man that I know very little about. Because I think I don't think I've really seen any of his films. Um, I th- I think this is the third John Carpenter movie you've watched since we've been together. Because you've seen Christine. Yes, I have. And you've seen Big Trouble in Little China. I've, se- I've seen but that before we got together. Seen before we got together. Um, so. I'd be like, yeah, so that film you made. I was going to say, like, <laughs> this, is a, this is a really unfamiliar thing for you. Because, like, I know we talk about, like, in the realm of doing this podcast, it was always about getting you to watch more horror movies. But then I realised, like, there's loads of famous horror directors whose works that you're not purely being in the realm of having never really watched any horror movies. There's, like, loads of, like, the auteurs or, like, the gods of the genre, like, directorial-wise, whose work you're not overly familiar with. Um, I feel like Carpenter and Craven will be the two that you watch the most. Probably. Because Carpenter and Craven... I've seen quite a few, maybe not directly um, Wes Craven movies, but, like, I've seen a lot of movies that I like... Where's Craven presents? Yeah, I feel like I feel like since we've been together, you've seen it a lot. Like, there's some that you'd seen prior to us get together, like Cursed, yes, I have, which is directed by. And then obviously, when we got together, you saw Scream. Have you seen all four Scream movies? I know you've seen Scream. I've seen Scream the first two, three, three. I think I haven't seen the fourth one. Um, we did Dracula, which was a Wes Craven presents jobby. We did Wishmaster, which was a Wes Craven's. Well, because Dracula. 
I had seen yeah. many, many years before we got together. Yeah. And then Wishmaster was a Wes Craven presenter's job at E. But yeah, so I feel like like Wes Craven adjacent stuff you've seen a lot of. Obviously with John Carpenter it's a different story. Yeah, I know. Um but like this is a this is an interesting film because this this movie is like the second in what John Carpenter considers the, the third, third, sorry, yeah, in, in the what Apocalypse he considers trilogy. his Apocalypse trilogy, which started with the thing and then continued with Prince of Darkness. But also, I feel like I don't really want to get shot saying this because John Carpenter fans will be up, like a crazy. But I feel like this is like the last great John Carpenter movie. Sure. This movie came out in 1994. His the to to my knowledge or to the way things are at the moment, the last movie John Carpenter ever directed, unless he makes another one before he dies, is The Ward. Sixteen years later, and in that period of time, he made Village of the Damned, his remake of Village of the Damned, which went straight to VOD. He did Escape from LA in '96. He did John Carpenter's Vampires. Then he did Ghost to Mars, and then he did The Ward. And also in between Ghost to Mars and The Ward, he directed the Master of Horror episode, uh, Cigarette Burns. Mm. So if you look at like that last 16 years of his career, everything in that 16-year period was kind of met with like middling to negative reviews. I know so many people that, that thought The Ward uh, was terrible, Um Ghosts of Mars is one of those ones where people like either really love it or they hate it. Um, I think Vampires was kind of met with quite an apathetic response as well. Yeah. <coughs> and people, again, like with Escape from LA, you're following Escape from New York, which is one of his best movies. And it was met, it's, it's widely regarded as one of his biggest like flops. Sure. So like for a lot of people, and myself included, this is like, the last great John Carpenter movie. He's made all of his classic films up until this point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween, etc. All of those movies are, like, in the rear view. Um, but this is a fucking... And, like, this is one of the only movies of his that I hadn't seen. Um, we literally have just watched it, and it's the first time I'd ever seen it. Mm-hmm. And this movie is fucking bonkers. Like, I... This movie has so many shades of not only his work in it, but it feels very much like there's a lot of Wes Craven in this movie mm-hmm. and a lot of David Lynch. Yeah. Like, yeah, this there's, movie there's is a... so fucking da- like, Lynchy. It's unbelievable. There is a, there, there's a couple of very specific shots that while we were watching, my brain was like... And it's the same shot that gets repeated a few times. And it looks exactly... Like Lost Highway. Yeah. And it's the image everyone thinks of when they think of that film. It's of, the teaser. It's the poster. Of the, of the highway. highway. Yeah. And yeah, there is a scene that legitimately is that shot. Mm. But yeah, it's it's um, very ethereal, this movie. Mm. Um, but before we get like really into it, do you want to do like your... Your, your thing you do. so I mean before we get into all of that I just wanted to kind of talk about the movie a little bit beforehand so like this film was made on a budget between 8 to 14 million there doesn't seem to be a specific number it just mm-hmm. says 8 to 14 I think it says budget 8 million but then as you, if you read the Wikipedia article it's like it says it was between 8 and 14 mm-hmm. and it fucking flopped it made 
eight million or just shy of nine maybe mm-hmm. and it properly yeah just shy of nine million it made so it was a box office flop did not do well much like a lot of films we seem to cover on this it later went on to gain a, a cult following i think in all honesty that's basically john carpenter's career <laughs> in a nutshell but it's really interesting when you look at like the reviews of it and stuff from um, when it, uh, I'm assuming from when it originally came out, um, they're, they're all like it fails to match its premise. It's only worth watching if you are a John Carpenter completist. Um, it's not a great film. Like the idea is there, but it doesn't achieve it. Mm. And I saw a review and actually I feel like if I'd have seen this when it came out, I'd have probably agreed with this review. And I agree with it looking at it now. Mm-hmm. Is it is a movie that was made far too early for it to make an impact. Okay. Does that make sense? So the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. point that someone made in a review is that if this film was made now, everybody would love it. Yeah. It is a movie that was way beyond its time. Mm-hmm. Which I think it is, like, watching it now, it's a really great film, and it it's really interesting. Yeah. But I think back then, this wasn't the kind of horror people were making. Mm-hmm. Because it's a very convoluted story. Mm-hmm. So I think, I, I do think part of the problem of it being a flop originally was that John Carpenter was way ahead of the curve with this film of where horror was going to be in comparison to where it is now. See, it's in, it's interesting that people say that. Firstly, I think I think I'm right in saying just based on what we've said, John Carpenter may be the most iconic and influential director to have a slew of films that weren't commercially or, and critically successful, mm-hmm. but then all went on to be regarded as classics. But I. Th- because, like you said, I've not really seen a lot of his films, like, outside of Big Trouble and Little China. But I know it gets said about a lot of his films, and seeing Christine and seeing Big Trouble, I've always felt like those are movies I would expect to be being made mm. now. Not back in the 80s and 90s, like, modern day. Mm. Because, especially with, like, I, I can't talk on all of his works, I've not seen it, but with a f- film like Big Trouble... It it's not a movie I look at and I'm like, oh yeah, this is a uh, late 80s, early 90s yeah. film. You look at it and you're like, this is a movie that would be made mm-hmm. now. Or, alternatively, would have been made as like a cheap budget Hong mm-hmm. Kong martial arts film. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, I, as I said, I can't speak for all of his work, but I, I, I always get a kind of feeling whenever I hear anyone talk about John Carpenter is he is a director who was always so far ahead of the curve and was making movies that yeah they didn't do great when they came out but they he was just he was doing things that people weren't quite ready mm-hmm. for yeah but more to your second point mm. and i'm going to bring up wes again because it's relevant to what you just said when you when you you were saying about how people felt about this movie when it came mm-hmm. out and how this movie feels ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that people had that response because the very same year this was released, Wes Craven released Wes Craven's A New Nightmare, mm-hmm. which is tonally and in a story sense very similar. For If you don't... I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's the one Freddy movie where basically... Oh, it's set in the real world. Yeah, Freddy is an act... So Freddy is actually an ancient evil 
and the evil that it, it like the form it takes on is Freddy. And Wes Craven is writing a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie in the real world. But as he's writing it, everything that he's writing is coming to life in the and real world. And happening to the actors. Yeah. So it's one of those movies where you're never really sure if you're in the real world, if you're in a dream, or if you're in the film. And I feel like a lot of those parallels are in this movie. Yeah. Where it's like somebody who is creating something, but that thing is coming to life. Or they are being taken into that realm of what is being written. Mm -hmm. And that movie was actually widely regarded as like one of the better Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And actually was praised for being quite a forward-thinking film at that time. So it's interesting to sort of look at the two films and be like, well, people didn't get In the Mouth of Madness and kind of slate there. But people... I feel like part of the reason for that is that Freddy was already a known character. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. The Nightmare on Elm Street was already a franchise that was... It had been going for a while when people were fully aware of who he was. And it had been spinning its wheels for a few years. Yeah, it had been it spinning its wheels for a while. So people kind of... It it was what it was because it was a Freddy film. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but one other thing I found quite interesting, and I've never seen any of his films, so I can't talk on this... But this is one of Ari Aster's favourite movies mm-hmm. and had a massive influence on him. I don't know how true that is because I've never seen any of his films to be able to say whether or not you can see the influence um, of this film in his films. I can see the influence on Hereditary, not so much Midsummer. Mm. Um, oh, is he the Hereditary guy? Yeah, so Ari Aster is the director of Hereditary and Midsummer. Um, I see now that you've said it I see a lot more of it in hereditary just because of like the nightmarish imagery and that kind of very lucid is it a dream is it reality altered states of not altered states of consciousness in the sense that people are on drugs but that kind of like you're so overcome with grief that you're just broken down and tired all the time and you're never really you reach that state of tiredness where you're not really sure what's real and what's not, mm-hmm. which plays very much into this film. Whereas, like, in Midsummer, very, Midsummer's played very straight, and there are altered states in that, but it's through drug use. But I don't really see the influence on uh, Midsummer as much as I do Hereditary, now that you've said it, but that would make a ton of sense. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. But I don't know a lot about his work, so I couldn't really speak on it. I'll probably never watch anything he's made. Because <laughs> I'm not sitting through Hereditary. And I don't want to see Midsummer. Man loves head trauma. I'd, yeah. I'd love to know... Like, I'd love to know what made Ari Aster fascinated with head trauma. But, like, people are always being decapitated or having their heads bashed in in his movies. <laughs> and it's really weird. God bless him. Hereditary's a masterpiece. Love huh. that movie. But, yeah, so... This week, we're covering In the Mouth of Madness, as we've said. So, it was directed... By John Carpenter. Bro, did you know for the longest time I thought this was a fucking an actual Lovecraft adaptation? Well, it's, it's a play on um, In the Mountains of Madness, yeah. isn't it? and that's what I thought it was for like a long time. I thought it was like a, a version of that. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. But I get why you would think that. Um, it was written by Michael DeLuca, who I know nothing about. Bring him up a second, because his name sounds familiar. So, Michael DeLuca... I feel like I've definitely seen something that he's written. He has... That's a producing credit. Let's have a look. He's only written eight things. 
So he wrote four episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. Yeah. Um, he wrote the screen pee, screen pee, the screenplay for Freddy's Dead. Yeah. Um, he wrote the teleplay for Nightmare Begins Again. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote the story for D- Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. And he wrote an episode of Star-, um, Star Trek Voyager. Well, that's why I know his name then, because obviously I'm a big Freddy fan. I watch Star Trek and I've seen Judge Dredd. Um, but more importantly in his career, I feel like this needs to be put in there. He produced Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Freed. Jesus. He also produced Under the Silver Lake. That's the movie by Robert... I want to say Robert Mitchell. Uh, the guy who made... Uh, he's the guy who made It Follows. Hmm. Yes, it is. I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah, it looks like he's far more well-known as a producer. Because he's produced some... like He produced like Fright Night, Moneyball, Social Network. Yeah, see, that's why I know his name. Cause yeah. His name's like one of those ones that's on like credits. Yeah, like Ghost Rider, both Ghost Rider movies by the looks of it, Rush Jesus. Hour movies. So yeah, I'd say he's probably more well known as a producer. Yeah, like I knew the name the minute you In said it. In fact, his uh, first producing credit is Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Which came out, what, a year, two years before this? Uh, 1990, so like four yeah, years so four before years this. Before this. Christ. Yeah, and his last credit is nothing that I've heard of. Oh, he produced the Babysitter's Club TV show. It was like the last thing that's been released that he produced. It's a weird career trajectory there. Started with Leatherface, ended with Babysitter's Club. (laughs) Alright, mate. That's a fucking interesting, like, meme. How it's started. How it's going. going. Okay, so cast-wise in this, we have Sam Neill as John Trent. Yeah, so... I'll let you go through the cast, but there's like... Okay, well, yeah, you can do yeah. that when I'm done. Um, so, Julie Carmen playing Linda Stiles, Jürgen Proshnow playing Sutter Kane, David Warner played Dr. Wren, and then kind of none of the other people are really that important. Charles Does that Heston. make sense? Yeah, plays, um, Charles Heston plays Jackson Harglow. And then Francis Bay plays Mrs. Pickerman because she does come into it quite and, a few uh, times. And John Glover's in this as well. Is he? Yeah, John Oh, Glo- yeah, he's there. Plays Sapestein. I don't know who that is. So, John Glover is the guy who played Lionel Luther, Lex Luther's dad in Smallville, and he's also the guy who creates Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin, and he's in Gremlins too. But, the interesting... See, the reason why I brought up Sam Neill... So, this is interesting, because this is an interesting point in Sam Neill's career. This is the second time he's worked with John Carpenter, because he worked with him on the memoirs of the Invisible Man in 92 with Chevy Chase. Mm-hmm. So, a year before this... He's in Jurassic Park, which is like the biggest movie of all time uh-huh. at that time. Probably still one of the biggest movies now. Probably the most high profile movie he's ever been in. But before this, he was he played Damien in The Omen 3. He did. In 1981. But eight years before this, in 1986, he auditioned to be Bond. Oh. So he he before Timothy Dalton got Bond. He auditioned to uh, be Bond and could have played Bond before Timothy Dalton. So he kind of had like this weird career where he was like floating in and out of like movies. He did Dead Calm with Billy Zane and Nicole Kidman, which is a fucking great movie. And then three years after this, he did A Red Horizon with um, Paul W.S. Anderson. So it's kind of an inter- it's a weird movie 
for him to do as his next project after Jurassic Park. Because you would have thought after Jurassic Park playing Alan Grant, that would have like bopped him up into the stratosphere. Yeah. He would have been like massively. And Sam Neill's a great actor. He's fantastic. Well, it was really funny because like a good chunk of the movie, I was trying to figure out what I know him from. Mm. And I figured it out about halfway through. Yeah. Because like I know everyone will be like, oh yeah, he's in Jurassic Park. He's in Wimbledon. Yeah, he plays Kirsten Dunstad in Wimbledon. Yeah, and he's also Thor, and the actor who plays Odin in the play in Ragnarok. Yeah, but he's in he's in he's in Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, yeah, he pops up in, but like my brain. What's really sad is my brain. It should have been Wimbledon that I remembered him from, yeah. but it wasn't. My brain was like, "Oh my god, yeah, it's Odin." And he was in Jurassic <laughs> Park three, and he's going to be in next year's Jurassic World Dominion. Yeah, I mean, Jurassic Park, you've kind of got me on a nah kind of part of the thing, because I don't really... I've seen them the first two, and I've only seen them twice, mm-hmm. maybe. Because I'm not a big... And I saw Jurassic World when it came out. Yeah. Because I went and watched it with you. But I'm not a big Jurassic Park fan. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a dinosaur kid. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those weird, like, career things where you're like, I know actors got to act, and maybe he did it because he enjoyed working with John Carpenter. Maybe. Um, but this is, this is one of those, um, sort of like, yeah, you, sh- he's an actor I've always thought should have been massive, um, especially for, like, how good he is. And he picks, like, really interesting things to be in as well. But I, I was shocked to find out that he's, he was first off born in Northern Ireland and then raised in New Zealand because mm-hmm. everybody always says he's he's just like a Kiwi. But I was also shocked to find out that he's 73 years old. <laughs> I was like, mm. because he's always kind of looked the same. Um, he's one of those actors, a bit like Jeff Goldblum, who's kind of always looked the same. And then you look at Jeff Goldblum and you're like, you guys must be kind of a similar age. And, like, Jeff Goldblum's, like, one of the sexiest men in the world. He is. And, like, Sam Neill kind of looks homeless now. <laughs> He's got, like, a massive grey beard and, like, grey hair. And he just looks kind of homeless. Um, but, yeah, he's fucking great. He's such a good actor. And this is another thing that I find as well with John Carpenter movies. All of his movies have really interesting casts. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, people that either would go on to be hugely famous that weren't famous when he worked with them. So people like Kurt Russell, Ken Forey, Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau. Um, and then obviously, you know, he, he obviously had a... When he did Escape from L.A., he worked with people like Steve Buscemi and then obviously James Woods. Uh, Jason Statham, one of the first movies Jason Statham did is Ghost of Mars. Hmm. Um, so he, he's known for like his ensemble casts, but he's a real actor's director. Like, he just hires people that are really fucking good at their job and just lets them do them. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a weird... Like, I just find this fascinating that he was like, I was in fucking Jurassic Park, motherfuckers. I went with Steven Spielberg. Now I'm going to do this weird little John Carpenter movie. Um, but what's the tagline of it? What's the synopsis of IMDb for this movie? I'm really intrigued so to see what So the synopsis on IMDb... Ew, let me roll up. <laughs> Uh, an insurance investigator begins discovering that the impact a horror writer's books have on his fans is more than inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. No. So... 
I mean, the fact that he's an insurance investigator is on there and that there's a horror writer, but that gives you literally zero information about this movie whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, the movie gives you as much information when you watch it. Like, it's not a very uh, giving movie in terms of, like, it's very disorientating. It's quite disorienting, I will say that, I will give you that. Can we also just take a moment before we do start this, because obviously my pronunciation generally is terrible, that I managed to, without fucking it up, say Jürgen. Yeah. Fuck yes. So proud of that. (laughs) Do you know how I know how to pronounce that? No. <laughs> He's a character in the Magnus Archives. <laughs> Jürgen Leitner. Fuck yes, podcasts. Thank you for coming through for me. So this movie for me is kind of like two things. Mm-hmm. This movie is a really interesting horror movie in kind of like a weird Jacob's Ladder yeah. kind of like disorientating, like fucking with you sort of thing. Like, this movie wants to fuck with you as much as it's fucking with its audience. And, like, it does that whole Lynch, Cronenberg, Wes Craven, dreamy kind of thing. But also, it's a really interesting take on, like, consumer culture and fandom. Mm -hmm. And, like, the power of content. Mm -hmm. Which, again, like, with John Carpenter, much like with Wes Craven and latter-day Jordan Peele now... All of their movies are filled with these, like, deeper themes about, like, the socio-political climate and, like, kind of things that go on in the real world. And I think it's really interesting. And to be honest, I wanted more of that in this film. Yeah. Because that's a really interesting aspect of the story is, like, the power of fandom, the power of content, the power of, like what happens to people when they become consumed by something. And it's like, it's an early take on like fan entitlement and how uh, fans consume content and then the way that they look at the people that created it and, and how that has an effect on them. And I feel like they didn't like explore that side of it as much as they could have done. Mm. I mean, I get that that's not really the point of the film, but it sets up such an interesting kind of like, oh my God, this book's making people crazy and he's like this amazing selling author and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, they never really follow through on some of the themes. That the, the, I that think the point there. of it is, is that it, See, it's weird watching the film and then seeing how it ends. I'll t- actually, I'll talk about that at the end because I don't want to give away the end now in case people haven't seen the movie and want to stop, go watch it and come back. Yeah. See, the interesting thing, and I've started realising I do this with a lot of films, is, but this one specifically, I know you don't listen to any of the podcasts I listen to, so this makes nothing, no sense to you whatsoever, but this film, watching it, feels like I could have been listening to an episode of the Magnus Archives, <laughs> and I like that about it, because yeah. I was watching it, and I was like trying to figure out which entity this would be that would cause something like this <laughs> to happen. I figured out it would be the spiral, but um, it does feel like a Magnus Archives story to me. Which sounds really weird, because obviously this is way predating that ever happening. But um, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why I enjoyed this film so much, because it was like watching an episode of the Magnus Archives, just without the archivist. Yeah, and 
I feel like there's the film's biggest strength is also its biggest detriment. Like it sets up this really intriguing story, and like the thing I was saying about the content and like consumerism and all that stuff is it 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 tries to thinly veil like make out that it's like a supernatural entity that's making people go crazy, mm. but. It's, it's, I feel like they just added that because of the supernatural elements of the story when really the way his fans are reacting to the book is kind of like, without the homicide, like looking at how Fifty Shades of Grey became a phenomenon, looking at how Twilight became a mm. phenomenon, like looking at like things like that and how like dangerous fandom can be. And again, like much like you were saying, in the early 90s, like, I mean, obviously, I know we had things like Beatlemania and, like, Michael Jackson. But was... it was... It wasn't as... Yeah. Because you look at, like, Michael Jackson's fandom in the 90s and how, like, devoted to him people were. And, like, but there was nothing like that surrounding, like, a book or a film or, like... I mean... Like, content itself. I, do, I can't say that purely because I know... Talking about like fandoms and fan fictions and stuff like that, the original fan fictions were written about the original Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. That is where fan fiction stemmed from. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like, yeah. No, like legitimately. So the first ever like recognised fan fiction in the form it stands currently. I know it predates that even then. Fan fiction has been a long-lived... But of the modern take of what fan fiction is, um, started with um, Star Trek, the original series. Shit, that's back in the 60s. 60s and 70s, yeah. That's crazy. It was like housewives stuck at home. Talk about how they wanted to get fucked by James T. Kirk. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Spock, obviously. But yes, he, like, so although fandom has changed a lot over the years and obviously has now become... I don't want to say fandom has become toxic because I'm I'm part of some fandoms that are lovely. But as a general, um, there are massive areas of fandom that are toxic. Yeah. And, and think... it's very much like something that would happen in this film. Whereas back in the 90s, as far as I am aware, it wasn't as A, far-reaching, and B, as insane as it can be now. And I think a large part of that is because we didn't have the internet. Yeah, yeah, the internet really made things worse. Um, because, <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Because the thing is, you couldn't just... you couldn't. The thing is, like back in the, back in the 90s, you couldn't just, like... <clears throat> say, for example, if I went and bought the latest Stephen King book... I couldn't just hop on the internet and be like, you're a cunt, you ruined my fucking life, your book is fucking shit. Like, people can now. And I would never say that, because Stephen King is fucking God, and I love that mm. man's pieces. But, you know what I mean? Prefer like, Joe. And I think fine. that's kind of, you know, what's made... It's it's the access... Yeah, these are access to the writers the and the actors. And, like and, yeah. and, like, the seeds, the seeds that he plants in this of, like what it means to be a fandom like how far would you go for your love of like there's a lot of little seeds that are planted but it never you never get a payoff as to why he became so popular other than the fact that it's some kind of supernatural entity that's potentially hidden in the words of the books that are making people behave like this see 
I feel sometimes I feel like whenever we do this, we watch two very different films because I didn't feel like that at all. Because the thing seems to be the insanity doesn't start until people read in the mouth of madness. Because the only person you see who has legitimately gone crazy, and before we go into the film completely, is his agent. His agent who attacks him. Who I say attacks him attacks. Um, Big Johnny Trent. John, yeah. So I feel like up until this point, he was just a very popular horror author. Mm-hmm. Much, again, in the vein of Stephen King. Who um, he may or may not be based on. Yeah. Well, he's he, he seems like he's kind of based on Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft more because of the type of stories he writes. Yeah. Because they're very Lovecraftian and less King. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, he was just a very popular horror author. Along the vein of Stephen King. In fact, in the film, they even say, um, um, Sutter's out out selling King. Yeah. Which I feel is like John Carpenter's little, like, wing, wing, nudge, nudge. Because him and, uh, Stephen King are mates, I think. Yeah, I think they're pretty confident they are friends. Um, so yeah, I feel sometimes like we just watch completely (laughs) different films. Yeah, but that's the great thing about art, and that's the great thing about doing this podcast, is it's all subjective. Everybody gets something different from, like, things, Mm. and that's kind of why we do this, is so we can talk about it. But yeah, this was, I feel like this was a fun one for me, purely because I, I think, I'm not saying you're not a big reader, I mean you're not, but... Like, I'm an avid reader. I devour books. My problem is I can't read. I, like, I can obviously... I can't you don't obviously. have the attention span yeah, I don't to have sit the and read something. Read. Like, I devour books. Mm-hmm. And you've witnessed it. Um, so yeah, I actually just eat them. I just eat them. I don't even, like, pull the pages out. I just, like, <laughs> full-on chew on them. Like I know snake. somebody who eats books, actually. is. <laughs> I, I'm freaked out consistently oh, by it. What the fuck? Whoa, 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 whoa. You can't <laughs> drop that bombshell. Just move on. So I know somebody I used to work with them who, like, doesn't eat, eat books. They don't work at the company we work... They didn't work at the company No, they don't work at the company we work at now. Um, so he um, chews on books. Oh, damn. And I remember him telling me, and I was like, if you even look at a book that I have in my hands, I will beat you to death with it. Just so work. I mean, in fairness, though, like how many authors have been told that their books are shit, and in this case, they literally are. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. I, like, there was never any explanation behind it. It was just he kind of dropped the fact on me, and then just never mentioned it. And I was going, I was like, I need more information. You can't just drop. I eat books, and then never tell me anything else. Also, like, like what type of books? Hardbacks, paperbacks? Because I imagine the paper in them is very different. Like Hard, they, I know. I don't think he meant like literally. Like he eats the pages. From what I gathered, from what he told me, is like he likes to chew on like hardback covers. Oh damn! We'll talk about it more later. Right? We'll we'll discuss it. Um, not on the episode, but yeah, it was just strange, and I was literally like, "Oh, you're never getting anywhere near any of my books." But no, in a non-et way, I do like. I tend to read a lot. Mm-hmm. So this was a really fun idea for me because the idea of like a book coming to life in that way, especially some of the books I've read, mm-hmm. is mildly terrifying. 
I mean, in fairness, this is just like a fucked up adult version of that Goosebumps movie that came out a couple of years ago. A little bit, yeah. But um, even down to the tagline, so the tagline for this film is, have you lived any good books recently? Mm. And like, I was in my head again, thinking like, the like some of the books I've read, I would legitimately last about five seconds in that world before I would be dead from something. Yeah, like, I would be fucked. Like, the only books I read are by Brett Easton Ellis. Well, other than, like, Mary Shelley and stuff like that, the, the main books I read are by Brett Easton Ellis mm-hmm. and fucking Stephen King. I'd be, like, I'd be fucked. Absolutely fucked. Mm-hmm. Exactly, that was my point. I was, like... Because I, I tend to read a lot of, like, vampire fiction and... In a weird fact, if I don't tend to read a lot, watch a lot of horror movies, I do quite like a horror book. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, there's so many books that I've read that I would just not survive. In fact, the last book I was reading, I was reading um, It Devours, the Night Vale book. Mm-hmm. I would be dead in Night Vale so fucking quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Legitimately. Um, so it's a really interesting premise, especially for somebody who reads. Yeah. The idea of getting to live inside a book. Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> That's alright, I don't like it. But we'll get onto the film, because I realise we've been nattering away for a while now. Um, if I if I thought I was going to live inside a book, I'd just read the fucking Wizard of Oz every day. I don't think you'd survive Oz, mate. I reckon I'd be alright. It would A, depend on which part of Oz you're dropped in, mm-hmm. and B, what characters you come across, but I don't think you'd survive very long. Yeah, but the thing is, though, I'm a fucking wuss. If that... If the if the Wicked Witch of the West was like, look, come just be like, do do some like fucking slave shit for me, like be my slave, I'd be like, all right. <laughs> like, I'm not being funny. I'm not going to argue with her, and I'm not going to argue. Like, I'm possible. not going to argue with them flying monkeys. Like, I mean, yeah, I I think I'd be all right because I'm I'm like I'm kind of I'm not a subservient human being, but I'm kind of like I know when I'm in a in a sketchy situation, and I'd just be like. It's cool. It's cool. We're all good. Like, I'd just chill, hang out with some fucking munchkins. See, there are, there are exactly two book worlds I'd like to live inside. Mm-hmm. I would love to live inside Howl's Women Castle. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even, like, be friends with Howl, just inside the world itself. And then my second one, I would... I'd die so fucking quickly. I would definitely get, like drained but i would love to live inside um the vampire chronicles the thing is as well i also have the upper hand like i know i don't i very really say this about dorothy because dorothy gale is one of my favorite characters mm. but i feel like i have the upper hand on dorothy because she went into oz without any backstory i've seen wicked i could talk to Elphaba, but like look i understand why you're pissed it off galinda the thing is- no because the thing is is we've seen wicked so she doesn't even actually hurt anybody yeah but like, look galinda fucked you over it's all good. Like, me and you, mate. It's Garlander. I'll be like, look, I understand where you're coming from. I ain't going to drop a house on your sister. <laughs> I ain't here to fuck your shit. Like, let me just go live in the Emerald City. I'll get a job. I'll pay my taxes. It'll be fine. I I think I'd be all right. I think it'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, no. I, th- I feel like I would not survive in either of my favourite books. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I feel like uh, the Vampire Chronicles would be quite boring to live in, though, because it's basically just the world as it is, but there's vampires. And if I don't cross paths with any vampires, that's kind of pointless. But then on the flip side, my favourite book of all time is American Psycho. Another book I feel like I could survive in, because I'm not a woman, 
I'm not a homosexual and I'm not homeless. So therefore, I wouldn't be on Patrick Bateman's hit list. This is very, very true. So he, he as far as I'm, like, as far as he's concerned, I wouldn't exist. I'd be perfectly fine. Yeah. This is there. Yeah. I mean, he's racist. Right. He's homophobic. He's misogynistic. I I don't check any of the boxes other than the fact that I'm poor. I mean, he might kill me for being poor. Other than that, I think I'd be fine. Yeah. So. But yeah, so actually, yeah, I have one book. If I was going to live in a fantasy world inside a book, I would live inside Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. Just because the world's really cool. There's fucking magic and shit. Needful things, however, I'd be fucked. You because would. The, the devil would be like, oh shit, son, you sell your soul to me, I'll give you this. I'd be like, okay, okay. Okay, that's fine. I'm good with it. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely I would definitely give the devil my soul for like. for like Pennies on the dollar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like legit. To be fair, I don't think it'd, it'd literally be like, oh look, look at this, look at this cool figurine I have. It's nothing important. It's just a random figurine of like I don't know, Darth Revan, or a new group pop you don't own. You'd be like, yeah, sold. I'm done. Let's go. Yeah, Needful Things is like a dangerous situation. I reckon. I reckon I could definitely get like fucked over in Needful Things quite easily. God yeah, you'd sell your soul super quickly, and it'd be literally for nothing as it well. Would, although <laughs> I, I feel like it would le- be less like Needful Things and more like that episode of Rick and Morty that's like Needful Things, where he's where the devil keeps trying to get Rick and Morty to sell their soul to him, and he and and Rick's just like, no, I've seen Needful Things, I've seen Friday the Thirteenth TV series, and he just keeps mugging him off, and I just feel like my misadventures with the devil would be more like that than they would Needful Things. But, yeah. I mean, fair. Right. <laughs> we really have gone off the rails already. Fuck me. Right, so, this movie basically just cold opens. Yeah, man. On the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, because it just opens with Trent getting dropped off at the insane asylum. Yeah. Like, legitimately, they're like, oh yeah, he's insane asylum. There we go. Stick him in. We're done. He punched a bloke in the balls. Not best happy about that. Kicks him in the balls. It was a lucky shot. Um, And yeah, that's literally how the film opens. And it's a really weird... You're literally dropped... It's the end of the film. That, like, literally, the opening and the end of this film are the same thing. <clears throat> and he gets so he gets dropped off the at the asylum, put in his room, and it, it's kind of weird because he, he I don't really know how to word it. So you kind of get a glimpse of the shit that is happening. Mm-hmm. But you're basically introduced to his character and told that his character has gone insane and you see like a random hand that starts like is like tapping on his window uh the hand and then he a a shadow moving behind him that's talking to him Mm -hmm. and because you're introduced this character and you're told this character is insane your brain immediately goes was it really there or is this his illness like yeah they really just drop you in and go, mm-hmm. is he sane or not, guys? We don't know. 
Um, but um, there was an accident filming this scene. Really? Yeah. So when the so basically he's in his cell. And he sees a shadow behind him. He turns to talk to the shadow. And he turns back round. The hand that was wrapping on the window smashes through the window. Right. When that happened, when they were filming it, a piece of the fake glass cut um, Sam Neil's neck open. Oh, shit. Yeah. I was like, oh, fuck. That's got to suck. Yeah. But yeah, so like, <coughs> yeah, his hand smashes through and then he kind of cowers for back and then everything returns to normal. Mm-hmm. And he's just back in his cell. Chilling. Chilling out. Um, but he eventually gets a visitor in the form of Dr. Wren, who has come to speak to him about what... Who's played by David Warner. I know, I said that earlier. previously but... in The Omen. He was know. the click-click cameraman. I know. And he's also the villain in Titanic. I said that. What I did the yeah, no, you said he was David Warner. I'm just letting the people at home know what else he was in. Because uh, okay. we've covered him previously. On we them. have indeed. Um, so he shows up to kind of speak to Trent to ask about, like... He's all like, what's popping? What's popping? Like, face. is he insane? Is he not insane? Like, what is going on in that weird brain of yours? And um, Dr. Wren says to the, the doctor, has he asked for anything? <laughs> and he's like, only one thing. A black crayon. Yeah. And he opened the door to his cell and he has got like full on beautiful mind. And there is crosses everywhere. He's drawn crosses on the wall, on his clothes, on his skin, on his mattress, on the floor. Just everywhere. And um he's basically kind of like I don't say playing up to the idea of being insane, mm-hmm. but he is. Um, what does he say he's suffering from? Paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, he reminds me a little bit of um, Renfield as played by Tom Waits in uh, yeah. Dracula, I guess. So the doctor calls him out and he was like, these crosses seem like a good way to make them keep you inside this room. Mm-hmm. And Trent responds with something along the lines of, oh, isn't this exactly something a paranoid schizophrenic would do? Yeah. Because he says to him, he he mentions to Trent about how Trent initially wanted to get out, and he says, oh, I've changed my mind. And that's when he says to him, well, this seems like a good way to kind of convince people that you're, like... Insane. Yeah, not fit for this world. But, yeah, so basically Trent has kind of decided he'd quite like to stay in the asylum. Mm -hmm. Because... Because he asks the doctor, doesn't he? He's like, I assume things are getting worse out there now. So he knows that outside of the asylum is not safe. Yeah. So he's trying to convince them that he is definitely 100% not fit to be out in public so that he can stay in the asylum where he believes himself safe. Yeah. And that's that's your first indication that the movie gives you that... Things aren't entirely <laughs> the, what they seem. The narrative of this movie is going to play fast and loose with the concept of reality. Oh, massively. So, the doctor kind of asks him, asks Trent to tell him what had happened. Like, what? Tell me the story of how you've ended up here. Um, and that is how we end up back at the what would be the traditional beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And we meet Trent properly and find out he's an insurance investigator who's been hired to look for the missing 
writer, Sutter Kane. And well, he's been... There's a fucking badass name. It is a badass name. It's a good name. It is. You are correct. Um, so Sutter Kane has gone missing. Um, and his friend and colleague, by the looks of things, has asked him to take on the case. His friend Robbie. Robinson. Yeah, he keeps calling him Robbie. Robbie, yeah. Um, to look into the disappearance as a favour to him, basically. Mm-hmm. And he tries to hire him as well, doesn't he? He tries yeah. to get him to work for him. He's like, nah, I'm not... Because he says the line, which becomes quite prevalent later on in the movie, uh, he says, I am my own person, like, nobody can, nobody pulls my strings. Yeah. Which comes up again later in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, they're in a diner, they're having this little breakfast, and basically is trying to lure Trent. He's like, just come work for me. If not, could you do me a favour and go look for this sort of game bloke? Because... Yeah. They're convinced he's missing, and I think they're bullshitting us. It's basically like the crux of the story. Yeah, he tries to pay it, palm it off as like a fucking publicity stunt, or they're trying to like get money for the release of the book or something along those lines, doesn't he? Basically, it's, mm-hmm. it's what he's convinced. And this is, I like this shot, and I like this scene, because while this is happening in the foreground of the shot, we can see in the background of the shot a man with kind of like he's got red markings on his face Mm -hmm. shambling i think is the only way to word it towards the window holding an axe the way that this shot is done of him moving from the foreground into the uh, from the background into the foreground kind of reminds me of a lot of the shots in twin peaks of bob Mm -hmm. whatever fucking bob's in the background and then suddenly he's just like in front of you and if you've never seen twin peaks Bob is legitimately like terrifying. Bob is probably the, one of the scariest villains ever created. Yeah. Um, and they use a lot of shots. There's one shot in a particular episode of Twin Peaks where he's really far away and then like he walks literally towards the screen super slowly and then he's like literally in front of the screen as if he's about to fucking Samara his way out of the telly. And it's fucking terrifying. And that's kind of what this reminds me of, the way that um, Carpenter shoots it. But yeah, so you see him kind of walking into the foreground of the scene and everyone outside of the restaurant is reacting. So your eyes are kind of drawn to him because you see all the people like freaking out, running away. Um, But Trent and Robbie have not noticed this. They are really into this conversation. There's people screaming outside it's the window. It's kind of like those scenes in, like, fucking films where someone's got headphones on and there's, like, a big fight going on behind them. Well, that one scene from The Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. With Stan Lee yeah. where he's got his headphones or on. Or that scene in, in Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Gina's got the headphones on. Yes. And there's that fucking massive fight going on behind yeah. her. Um, so, the guy smashes an axe through the window... Um, Robin, Robin, Robbie gets like pushed off of the table and the guy is then like leaning over Trent with the axe and he says what becomes kind of like I feel a little bit like the tagline for this movie he says the words do you read um, Sutter Kane and then as he's about to fucking axe Trent in the face the cops show up 
and put like 20 bullets in it. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck am I watching? Mm -hmm. Like, what? Because it's really out of nowhere. Because it's like just a really peaceful scene and this just kind of happens. Yeah, it's crazy. But I feel like that happens a lot with this film. Yeah. Which I quite like. It's really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, So... We we move into like the next day, or I'm assuming it would be the next day. I'm always really confused by what the timeline of movies are. Yeah, this film doesn't really have a linear timeline. Either, no, so it's kind of like. Um, and Trent goes to Kane's publishers. To Arcane. Arcane, um, to meet with them and ask, basically, the questions about what is what is going on. When was the last time you saw Kane? Any contact with him, you know, general questions you ask when people's mm-hmm. missing. And they basically tell him they haven't heard from him. The last person to hear from him was his. What's the word I'm looking for? Agent. Thank you. Was his agent. Who was the mental dude with the yeah. facts. Well, this is the interesting thing is because they say like he received some of the pages of the new Kane book, book mm-hmm. in the mouth of madness. Mm-hmm. And then when Trent is like, well, can I get contact information? I'd like to speak to him. They're all like, well, you've already met him. And he's like, what? And they're like, yeah, he tried to kill you yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. You watched him die, mate. And he's like, oh, that guy. He seemed normal. (laughs) (laughs) That quote's normal. Normal. And he's like, okay. Yeah, but Trent is basically convinced this is all a publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. He is like, this seems like bullshit. You guys want to sell more books? He's not really missing whatever. Yeah, like, so you fuck a lives out. Yeah, so he he's a little bit like he's like, I'll look for him, but I think you're lying. Um, so he leaves, and uh, he just like heads home. Oh, he heads to the bookshop, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he, yeah. he has a bit of a run-in with the woman who's, like, his editor, because he makes a joke, and she's like, we're not in the mood for jokes. Yeah, and that's yeah. when she says the whole thing about him outselling King and all this shit. And then that's when he decides he's going to go to the bookshop and pick up a couple of his books for research. Yeah, he kind of heads to the bookshop. He picks up a copy of each of... His books. His previous books, yeah. And um, we get a really interesting interaction with the... So the bookshop is kind of... It's it's all in the background. Now, I find this really interesting about this movie is there's a lot of stuff often happening in the background Mm -hmm. that you don't really notice because the shots are not putting focus to it. So Trent goes to the bookshop and I don't know if you noticed this when watching it, the bookshop is destroyed. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, all of the shelves are over, books are thrown about. The only shelves that are fine are the cane books. Yeah. They haven't been touched. And it's really weird because, like, in my head, like, my brain saw it. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But Trent doesn't react Mm -hmm. at all to the fact that the rest of the shop is destroyed. Which I thought was really interesting when I was watching it. And then so he goes, he picks up the cane books and as he's doing that, uh, 
probably going like his early 20s ish yeah um comes over and says to him i can see mm-hmm. and then follows it up with he can see you he's watching you yeah yeah it's really creepy yeah and uh Trent's just kind of like all right dude putting his books in his bag and he is out of there which seems sensible that would be me he's like ah, okay bye <laughs> yes so yeah he just kind of like straight up leaves he's like i'm out and I don't know if it was a scene that happened slightly earlier, but in my brain it happened after the bookshop. So he's heading home and he sees... So this scene is really interesting to me. So he sees a poster for the previous book. Yeah. I can't remember what it is. Is it the horror? Yeah, it's like the horror of Hobbs End, I think. The Hobbs End Horror, I think it's yeah. called, which is a play on the Dunwich Horror. Um, And he... The poster's damaged so he pulls the flat back slowly to look at what's behind it but we don't see what he sees mm-hmm. and he doesn't really react to it which is interesting seeing as to what happens later on in the yeah. film so he just kind of walks off and he walks past an alleyway where he sees a police officer beating a homeless man no he's beating a graffiti oh he's artist. beating a graffiti artist in front of a a group of homeless group people. Group of homeless people. And he just kind of watched it happen and then the cop turns around and he's like, do you want some of this too? And he's just like, nope, I'm out. And he just leaves. Like, there are so many things that happen that in my head I'm going like, that is not the reaction. That is not a normal reaction hmm. to what is happening here. So he heads home. He starts reading the cane books. And I'm assuming he binge reads, it reads like all of them in a night. Yeah. And he starts like falling asleep as he's reading them and he's having like these weird nightmares of like the cop in the alleyway beating the guy, but his like the face is all weird and like destroyed. And then there's like other people with axes and he's like, wakes up and he's like oh and then licks to the side the fucking cop is there and yeah. then wakes up again oh those double wake up man i have never had a dream where i've woken up still in a dream ever yeah. it seems to be like a really big film thing it happens in quite a few like films yeah well it happens there's that scene in american werewolf where it happens yeah where he has the dream about the nazi werewolves killing his family then he wakes up and then has the dream where it comes through the window and then he wakes up again. Yeah. I have never had a dream in which I wake up, but I'm still inside the dream. Yeah, I am. Never happened to me. I don't think it's a real thing, but it's, they seem to love it in a mm. horror movie. Um, so he kind of is then looking at all of the covers of the books and he notices that they've all got like these little patterns patterned into it. Yeah. So he oh, he desecrates these books. He starts ripping the covers. Oh, I can't. I can't. <laughs> he oh, he rips the covers off of each of the books and then starts cutting out the shapes. It hurts me, man. And then he realises if you do a little puzzle jigsaw, they all fit together perfectly as well. Like, this is like... <laughs> he's like, like... His cutting job is, like, spot on. 
does a really good job of cutting these up and they make the shape of new england yeah apparently i don't know what shape like new england is it? it was new england yeah well boston massachusetts is in new england oh fucking no is it yes no massachusetts is a state Massachusetts is part of New England. That's why the New England Patriots are a Boston football team. Is it? I know nothing about American oh, yeah. states. <laughs> oh, it's a region, so it's yeah. not a state. It's a region. Yeah. So it's six. Okay, that's fine. I was like, no, babe. Massachusetts is a state. I know that. But Massachusetts is in New England. Yeah, okay, right, that makes sense. I didn't realise they had, like, regions like we do. Yeah. I mean, I know ours are a lot smaller, but we still have regions. You mean counties? We have counties. Well, no, we still have regions as well, like southwest, northwest. Oh yeah, I guess, but ours are like mainly like regional by county, aren't they? Yeah, but our counties are basically their states, aren't they? Yeah, I guess that's what. Yeah, I would. Yeah. America's just. I, I don't understand America's how it works. Fucking it's America. Um. So yeah, he kind of puts them all together and he realises it makes the shape of New England and that the dot on the map is must be Hobbs End. Yeah. I don't know how he comes to the decision that the dot is Hobbs End. Yeah, I don't either. He I think make... he's just looking for a starting point. He's like, X marks the spot. That <coughs> must be Hobbs End. Like, it's not a real place. Like, it's they know it's not a real place. But he's adamant that this little spot is... Hobbs End. Yeah. And then um, he's like, we're going to Hobbs End. And they're like, it doesn't exist. And he's like, maybe not on modern maps, but there's lots of like villages and towns in America that don't exist anymore. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, dude, <laughs> calm down. You're starting to sound really conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, so they head off him and what is her name? Linda Styles who is Kane's editor, head off to go find Hobbs End. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that everyone's like, fine, if you want to do that, do that. But it doesn't exist. You just sound like a conspiracy theorist <laughs> right now. But they decide to go, and they're driving along on this lovely old country road. Well, I say country road. It's a highway, isn't it? Yeah. Um... Heading through Massachusetts to go and try and find Hobbs End. And so as it starts out with Trent driving and he drives past like a teenager on a bike. Yeah, because this is when it starts doing the Lost Highway thing. Yeah. And um, just past the teenager on a bike with like, he's got, it's really funny because he's got cards in his wheel so it makes the noises. Mm. He had like Joker cards as we're in the spokes of the bike to make it Mate, do the noises. do you remember when you used to get fucking spokes and reflectors in cereal boxes? Yeah. Because what is it like Frosties and stuff? That you yeah, Frosties and all of that like lot. any Kellogg's cereal, they had like the little spokes that you could put on your wheels. I mean, I had so many of them. But they had like the reflectors as well, didn't mm-hmm. they? They had like the cockerel, the Kellogg's cockerel on them and you would like... Mate, do you remember the good old days when you used to get like good shit in fucking cereals? Like... Oh, you've got a yo-yo at the bottom of your cereal. Like, I would I would be such a pain in the ass though, because like if it was something that I would like want, I would always make my mum buy the cereal 
then when we get home from like Tesco, I would open the box, I would shove my hand in, take the toy out, and then like seal like the thing, and then put the, the box back. Rather than just like a normal person who would tip the cereal out, mm. I would just take the toy out straight away. Because they did it when Star Wars Phantom Menace came out. They had like these little, I'm sure I'm aged now, they had like these little gold busts mm. um, of like all the characters, mm-hmm. and I had like a lot of those. But it's like, do you remember when they used to put shit in fucking crisps as well? Because they did, when Star Wars got re-released, so when the first, when they did the special editions of Star Wars movies in 97, they had the Tazos, and I had like a collection of those as well, and it's like, you just... Oh my god, Tazos. You would go into the shop, and you'd like, feel the bag, and you, or you'd shake it, and you'd be like, oh that sounds like it's got something in it! Yeah. And then half the time, you'd either end up with doubles, or you'd just like... A really shitty character. Yeah, or it want. would just be like, it would be nothing, it would be just like a... A crisp that's like particularly hard or like thicker than the rest of them, and you're like, fuck you, thick crisp with two C's. <laughs> thick, yeah, no. thick crisp sounds like a rap name. Yo, 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 it's thick crisp. It does actually. But you know, I remember that vaguely. I remember Tazos though, because I never knew what you actually did with them. I had a massive collection, I had so many, no idea what you did with them. Well, the Star Wars ones were cool because they released like a collector's booklet, and you could put them all in there and they make up like scenes of like the Star Wars stuff. But they were like pogs. Tazos were basically just pogs. So if you you knew how to play, like for anybody that grew up in the nineties, you know what a pog is. Like it's the were little... they the little ones you about you. I don't think they're what I'm thinking of. So you're thinking of the rubber things that you turn inside you out. You turn inside out and they bounce. No, okay. so pogs were like the little cardboard circles that mm. had like things on them, and you'd get the slammers, and you'd have to like slam them down. Oh, you know, I know it then. I know what you're about. It was yes. kind of like um. Oh, what's the game called? You played them with the little plastic. Jacks. No. Um, it's like t- tiddlywinks. Yeah, yeah, Kind of yeah. like tiddlywinks. So you'd get the little one and you'd... I feel like anyone who's potentially not English won't know what the fuck tiddlywinks is because I don't know how prevalent it is. I was like, you got a little, like, little plastic circles. Yeah. And you'd put one down and you got the second one and you had to basically try and jump it as far as you could. Mm. You had to press down on the edge with the second plastic Mate, circle. I fucking remember. I used to fucking love tiddlywinks. Okay, I spent hours, me so and my granddad. I was, in, I was in junior school when Pogs became massive. And like, Pogs were fucking... Did they get banned? Yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, like, we got Pokemon cards banned and Top Trumps banned from our school. So when I was in junior school, we got Pogs banned. And then when I went into secondary school, they banned yo-yos. Because um, kids were fucking... fucking about Yo-yoing yo-yos. everything. Yeah, so they would take your fucking yo-yos off of you. Then for, a, for like, when I was in secondary school, I think it was like in my second to last year, fucking everybody had a Game Boy and everybody was playing Pokemon. Um, so then they started confiscating fucking Game Boys and shit and it all got really out of control. And I was like... Bet your motherfuckers like wish you had some pogs right now. But yeah, yeah no, we got top. We got um, Pokemon cards got banned. Ofs. Yeah, it was crazy. Because there were so many fights over the fucking shiny Charmander. Not Charmander, Charizard. Fuck me. Charmander's and war. then um, yeah, when Top Trumps became really prevalent, what Top Trumps got banned because there was a lot of fighting over Top Trumps. Yeah, man. Like, I remember the good old days when you used to get good shit in your crisps or in your cereal. I have some Top Trumps still. I've got a Harry Potter set and I've got a Doctor Who set. I've got a signed Doctor Who set by the guy who who voices and moves the Daleks. So the two guys who do that. 
Dalek controls. They don't put shit in cereal anymore. They don't even put fucking sugar in cereal anymore. No. Fucking hell. Took away all of our fun. Yeah. But we do get Lucky Charms over here now. Like, actual, legit Lucky Charms. One of the things, like, they do do, though, is they just, like, give you fucking discounts to theme parks and shit. Or books. Or books. (laughs) World Book Day rolls around, everyone's there. Yeah, everyone's like... Little (laughs) cut-out... Yeah, everyone's like, buy a box of fucking Weetabix and get, like... A free World Book Day token. Oh, man. Fucking... The world. But, like, Happy Meals still exist. But like Happy Meal toys aren't as good as they used to be. No, either. they're not. They also, when World Book Day rolls around, they do the World Book Day tokens yeah. on the fucking side of the... Not even always World Book Day either. You can do... I think it's like twice, three times a year they do them. And you take the little token from the side of the thing to WH Smith's mm-hmm. and you get a free kids book mm-hmm. to try and encourage you to read. Did you ever Did you ever remember like things like with a cereal where it's like you have to collect like four special tokens off the back of these boxes and mail off and you get oh yeah like mail away shit like mail away stuff i think mail away stuff's still pretty big in america because the first set of star wars figures so the first set of star wars kenner figures was all mail away yeah so you had like the box and then you had to like mail away for the figures that was the only way you could get them like yeah i remember that shit like when i was a kid like I'll tell you what did me in as a kid. Uh, they still do it now and it winds me up to no end. So you know the sticker books, the sticker annuals? Yeah. And you, so you get like, get the stickers at the news agent, mm-hmm. 50p, mm-hmm. and they give you the little pack and you would always be missing at least 20. Yeah. You'd press have to ma- the book. You could mail off for them. And you had to send away, but they were so expensive because they had only run the stickers for like two months. And if yeah. you hadn't collected them all in those two months, you had to pay directly to the company to get the stickers you needed remaining. But I'm pretty sure they sent you full packs. You couldn't request specific stickers. So you basically... I lived my entire life. I had so many sticker books that were half completed because my mum was like, I am not paying over the odds for fucking stickers with no guarantee that they are the stickers you need. And I'm like, but mum, I only need three left. See, that was like my childhood, bro. My childhood was like pan- <clears throat> Panda Pops. Oh, Panda Pops, man. Fucking 20p pick mix from the post office. Do you... don't know if they were around when you were a kid, but you used to get the ice lollies from the store. But they were like... you get them from like the local news agents, but they were like plastic topped and you needed scissors to open them. So you'd go to the shop, you'd buy one because it was warm and then you couldn't open it till you got home. Mate, you you like see everyone there like chewing on it, trying to pull the well, tabs off. Do you remember those like little fucking happy shopper drinks that had like? So they were like little plastic cartons. Oh, and you twisted the top off. No, 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 no. Oh. So they were like they were like square. Oh no! But they had like peel off lids. Oh yeah. You'd like have to pierce them, and you like they were like ten p or some shit. Yeah. Yeah, like fucking our childhoods were weird, man. It was the plastic, the, the ones that looked like actual bottles. They'd be like pink, red, and they came in colours, not in flavours. And twist the top off. I'm not entirely sure what was in them, but I'm pretty sure it was cocaine and sugar. Because mm-hmm. you would go fuck ass mental. Uh, also, things, now that I've mentioned the mail away thing, do you remember the fucking Sony Ericsson mobile phone that was released via Coca Cola? No. So I had one. So back in, we're talking like 99, so we're talking what, 12, 22 years ago. So when mobile phones just first started coming out, Coca-Cola did one. So it was like a square Sony Ericsson phone, Mm -hmm. but it had like a fascia that you could take off, but the fascia that was on it was like silver and it had the Coke thing on it. 
And I think you had to collect something like 250 fucking Coke lids, like ring pulls, and then still pay like 40 quid. And then you got this Coke phone. And it was like a full funk. It was like a proper, fully functioning. I mean, to be Sony fair, Ericsson. at that point, you've paid about fucking 300 yeah, quid. So. It was a fully functioning, like, Sony Ericsson mobile phone. But it was through Coca Cola. It yeah. was the weirdest. It's the weirdest fucking thing. I have some like, words with my dad about this. I never got a fucking Coca Cola yeah, so phone. Yeah, here, here is a bunch of ring pulls, and now you have a phone. And the phone was so garbage, they may as well have just made it from the fucking ring pulls. <laughs> And it was back in the day when, like, you could, like, put codes... Like, do you remember when you put the code in and it would play, like, an 8-bit fucking ringtone? So it had, like, its own melody maker on it and you would, like... You would go C, D, A, C, D, A, C, D, A and it would play, like, the Coke theme or, like, a fucking 16-bit version of it. And, like... People were paying like one pound fifty to get fucking garbage ringtones on that. Oh my god! The amount of people when I was in school who had the fucking crazy frog ringtone. So we are in the year of our Lord, twenty twenty one, and I'm almost a hundred percent. Oh, you know your dad. Your dad's ringtone is still crazy frog. My dad. My dad's. Okay, so just just for shits and giggles and take the piss out of my dad for a second. So my dad, my dad's phone, I don't know what his ringtone is now. Because officially, as of last year, my dad finally got an Android. Mm-hmm. So he has like a proper person phone. But for the longest time, you know the really old Nokia like ring ring ringtone? Mm-hmm. Because he had what I refer to as the old people phones... For anyone who doesn't know what these are, they're the ones that they look still like, oh, so you've got to press the button three times to get a fucking C. And they are about the size of an Android with really big buttons. Mm-hmm. And he had my entire childhood up until what, what my late 20s, this fucking phone that literally the only option for ringers was six different types of sp- like phone ringing. Oh, yeah, he finally caved and got an Android madness i don't know how he survived up until the year 2020 before getting an actual legitimate android phone but yeah he will because like he used to break them constantly he has a habit of like leaving them on car roofs Uh, he's dropped four phones in the pond fishing so like it was a waste of money to get him like a nice phone but yeah no and also he has an android now he now has facebook He's updated his status once. That was when he got Facebook. <laughs> he doesn't text because he's not really 100% sure on how texting works. <laughs> like my dad, I want to be very clear as well, is my dad isn't old. My dad is like 53. So he's not even like old, old. He's like just in his 50s. And he doesn't really know how technology works. He can turn a computer on and make World of Warcraft run. And that's about it. That's what you need really, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, sorry, we're a really 90s thing then. Um, and we, we gave birth to Thick Crisp. We did give birth to Thick Crisp. So yeah, so... um, Trent and Linda switch places. I'm just going to call her Styles because that's what he calls her through most of the movie. He doesn't refer to her by Linda. So Trent and Styles style. switch over. Mm-hmm. Trent has a little nap. Styles drives, and then we see the road turn into the Lost Highway, like, two more times. Yeah. And every time it does it, we see the guy go past on the bike. But every time the guy goes past on the bike, he is older. 
Yeah, he's like some old man now. Yeah, and then eventually uh, Linda hits him with the car. I was just straight up like fucking plows into like the This car. sequence is the key to like what happens in the rest of the film. Yeah. I feel like they're on a bit of a time loop when they do this, but I feel like this particular highway that they're on is like the portal or whatever it is yeah. that leads them to like the second half of the movie. Oh yeah. The third time you see the guy, so the second time you see him as the old man, it's when he gets hit by the car. And he's, but then as they're tending to him, as he's on the floor, he gets, he up. drives past them again. On no, the he bike, gets up and cycles past them again. And he says, it won't let me leave or he won't let me leave. Yeah, he says, he two. won't let me yeah. leave. And uh, they just get back in the car and drive off after that. I and feel he, like they're on a bit of an infinite <clears throat> loop. Yeah, here. Trent's like, we'll report it when we get to the next city, village, yeah. town. I don't really know how American decide what kind of thing it is but I think it's they don't have like villages and towns today it's it's cities yeah so he he goes back to sleep they've not just act like hit a bloke and nearly killed him he just has on a nap it's fine yeah and then as they do that they're very nonchalant about it because he gets up and just drives off the lights completely cut there's pure darkness outside and Linda leans Styles leans out of the car and they are driving on clouds and this is like the portal into Hobbs End. Yeah. So she crashes down, drives through a tunnel, kind of freaks out, wakes Trent back up, and um. And we are now in. Fast we are and now in presents Hobbs End. Yeah, we are now in Hobbs End, and he's like, "Oh wow, you found it. Good job. Solid." So they get out of the car, they go for a little wander. Um, Trent is super distracted by an antique store. And while he's looking into the window, um, Styles notices a bunch of mildly deformed children chasing a dog. Mm-hmm. Like they're all like they've got like cuts in their faces and like fucked up, mouths, and fucked up mouths. It's really weird, and they're chasing this dog. No apparent reason. They're just chasing a dog. Find out why later, but... Yeah. Um, so, they move on. They head up to the hotel they're going to be staying at. And the hotel is called... I can't remember what the inn's called that they stay at. I feel like this is something I should have remembered. Because it's a reference to a fucking Lovecraft story. Yeah, I don't know where they're staying. Do you remember? No, I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, good. <laughs> I think it's um, like called like Pickman's Hotel or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's got a really like, obscure name. Um, but they head up to the hotel and they meet the, the sweet, innocent old lady, Mrs. Pickman, who runs the hotel, lends, gives them a room. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this wonderful piece of artwork on the wall behind where there's sort of a young couple taking a mosey. Yeah, I thought this picture was meant to be of them. Because you never actually see the guy's face, but the woman in the picture looks kind of like her. It's kind of like, yeah. So we, like, it's quite, I mean, it's, they're, they're facing out, they're looking, or she's looking and he's not. He's kind of half turned yeah, like, uh, uh, out into like the lake, room on a lake. And, uh, 
Trent's all like, oh, that's a, that's a nice painting, and turns to talk to Mrs. Pickman, and then Styles turns around and look at, looks at it, and they've both turned their back. So the the painting has changed, which is unusual and weird. Hmm. But Trent's not really bothered. He doesn't even notice it until Styles says something in the room, and he's like, I think you're just saying things. I don't think that happened. He's so nonchalant about everything. He's just yeah. like, oh, I don't believe you. You're <coughs> lying to my face. And I'm like, dude, come on. You have witnessed so much weird shit happening by this point, And you're still adamant mm. that none of this is happening. But they do have a really interesting conversation in the car, actually, about reality. Because um, he basically says, like, the books aren't real. And uh, Styles responds with, um, yeah, it isn't reality because everyone agrees it's not reality. But what happens when people disagree and say that his books are reality? Yeah. Which is a really interesting idea as well. It's like reality is what we decide reality is. And that can change if yeah, the goes- mass decide that that isn't reality anymore. And it kind of goes back to the themes that we talked about at the beginning of the episode with like the whole fandom and willing things into existence. And I, I do kind of, because the film never gives you a definitive answer of what Hobbs End is, how they end up there, isn't that? And I do kind of wonder... Mm, they do kind of. I do kind of wonder if it's because the fans have like willed it into existence. They do kind of explain it. Mm. A little bit later on, they do kind of give you a, a kind of explanation of what Hobbs End actually is. Yeah. But not like a, this is exactly what it is. It's not a full explanation. It's still pretty ambiguous. But, um, yeah, Trent is adamant that this is, none of this is real. Because um, she starts describing things that exist in the room in the hotel. And she's like, well, I know that that's there because it's in the book. Like that painting is there because like, that's in the book. And she's like, be careful, there's a loose floorboard there. Because it's in the book. Mm. And Trent's all like, aha, if it was, if we were in the book, I would open this and there would be a church with golden spires. He whips the curtain open and it is a, it's a farmhouse, a farm place. I know what words I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say. Um, (laughs) It's really funny because Styles is like, if you had read the book properly, you would know it was the east facing window and yeah. she slaps the curtain before this, on her before side. this scene they talk to the woman behind the counter the receptionist yeah and she says that she's never heard oh of yeah she says she's never heard of Sutter Kane and then the, the Sutter Kane books in the room yeah um but yeah so um Styles whips the curtain open and there is the church with the golden spires exactly as it's described in the book so they decide they're gonna take a mosey up to the church have a little look see Um, And when they get there, the church is locked. And it is exactly, again, it is exactly as described in the book because um, Siles is quoting the post. She's she's reading from the book as they get there. She's like, uh, it was built on like a a dark temple. Um, It's an evil location. There's like a big golden Jesus and uh, it's exactly as they describe it mm-hmm. from the book. And you look at the building. So while they're there, a bunch of people will start showing up in their cars. Like, <sighs> speeding up the mountain, no time for 
no time for grandma straight to the church and um styles is like we need to go we need to go now we, this no we can't be here so she drags him off and as they're leaving you can hear the townspeople all shouting for kane because he has stolen their children and the door slams open in this really the scene really reminds me of the omen there is a young blonde child inside the church the door starts slamming open and close and open and close and then when they open again for the final time it is Cain stood there and then all of these Dobermans hellhound-esque Dobermans all appear from the corner and start chasing the guys back to their car and attacking them mm-hmm. now Trent is not impressed by this because he's like there is no way you could have known that was happening I knew this was a publicity stunt. You are a lying liar who lies. And she's like, no, I knew it was going to happen. And he his, his response is, is it a decent response? He's like, no, there's no way you could have known it would happen. It's not in any of his books. So the only way you could have known it was going to happen is if this was a publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. To which Styles does give the vaguely sensible answer of like, I knew it was going to happen because it's in his new book. I have read, like, I know that from some of the pages of his new book that I've edited. This is a scene from the new book. And Trent's not really having it. He's like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm leaving. He's like, I'm packing my shit, going the fuck home. Mm -hmm. Like, slamming his stuff into his suitcase, and he storms downstairs to speak to Mrs... I want to say Pickwick. It is Pickwick, isn't it? I don't know, babe. Oh, Jesus, I've said the name so many times. It doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. Pickman. <laughs> there Jesus. You go. So he's talking to her behind the counter, and when he notices the painting again this time, the figures are all like a, a lot like all of the other characters have got, started to get deformed. Like one of the yeah, eyes is slightly warped. higher up. The face is, I think the face is like the mouth, like yeah. gaping open on one side. And he's like, That's an interesting painting. Did you, uh, Styles said you painted that. And uh, she's all like, I have no idea who Styles is, never met her before in my life. And he's like, Oh, she seems to know you. Interesting. So, as this conversation is happening, Styles goes running past the side door and takes off in the car. And Trent goes running after her and he's all like, for fuck's sake. And as this happens, we pan back into the room and Mrs. Pickman's husband is chained to her leg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really weird mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um. So, Styles is headed up back up to the church. She's determined to find out what's happening she gets into the church and she finds a creepy door and behind said creepy door is Kane working on in the mouth of madness to be typing away um and he sends her insane basically he shows her the book he's working on and this is when we kind of get an explanation from him in a way of um all of his stories were being fed to him by the monsters from beyond the elder gods Mm -hmm. or the other gods and um 
they've been feeding him all these stories and he didn't know it was real. He was, so he didn't realise it was real to begin with, but he's now realised he's real and he is creating Hobbes End through his stories. So his writings are bringing Hobbes End to life, which is mildly terrifying. Um, And they basically, they now want to be free. And that is what In the Mouth of Madness is for, is to finally free the Elder Gods. But yeah, so the Elder Gods are basically like, let us out! And he's like, okay. (laughs) I mean, basically what's going on. Also, he has some like weird creature, like baby creature growing out of the back of his head. Yeah, he's doing a fucking, oh, uh, what's his Voldemort. Name? He's doing a quirrel in Voldemort. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but that's never touched on again in the rest of the film. It's just in this one scene and then you never see it again. Yeah, I mean, is that maybe not perhaps the overall big evil that's like... Maybe. All consuming him, perhaps? Maybe. So, Trent, meanwhile, has been having a little bit of a mooch around the town, heads to the pub, has a little chat with the bloke who's running the pub. Yeah. And he's <laughs> all like, none of this is real. And Trent's like, oh, you're a really good actor. Like, you're really, you're doing a good job at selling this fake town. Good job, bro. And he's like, you, the dude's like, you need to leave now. Like, Shit is going down. And Trent literally is like, such a good actor. You're really believable in this role. And I'm like, at this point, have you not maybe thought, maybe this is all real? Mm-hmm. It's a really unusual way the character reacts to yeah. things. So he heads back to the hotel. And... Um, it's... It, it's the, the the return to the hotel things happen in a slightly weird order. So he heads back to the hotel. He meets Styles again. Yeah. And he's like, "We're gonna leave. I'm gonna go get us signed out." He heads back downstairs. Can't find Mrs. Pickman. She's not behind the desk. We're very unclear as to where she is. Here's some noises coming from the basement, though. Never go into a basement. Good things never happen in a basement. Ever. Mm. But he goes down to the basement. I feel like he, like the horror movies not exist in fucking these films. So he heads to the basement and he sees lovely, sweet, old lady Mrs. Pickman turning into an eldritch horror and chopping up her husband. Yeah, man. This is gross. She's like... Eldritch horror, she's got like tentacles coming out of her like stomach. This is weird. She's like hacking her husband to bits. It's really weird. Um, And he's like, oh, I'm out. Heads back upstairs. And when he gets upstairs, um, Styles is in the bathroom. And there is Eldritch horror tentacles coming out from underneath the door. Fuck yes, the Eldritch horrors are here. So he's like, nope, I'm out. Jumps in the car, heads to the town. He's like, oh, I'm getting the fuck out of here. So he heads to the to leave town and he runs into a circle of people doing like a ring around the rosies. Yeah. <clears throat> around Styles. And he gets out of the car and like runs into the bar. 
where he has another chat with the bloke behind the bar. And the bloke behind the bar is all like, it's not real. You need to go. We told you to get out of here. And he started to kind of like, he's got all cuts and grazes yeah. on his face. Um, and like Trent is still adamant because I'm pretty sure, again, he says to him like, you guys are really trying to sell this, aren't you? Yeah, and then he, like, the dude shoots himself. And the guy, like, yeah, he he kills himself. And he's, like, um... Cause it's really interesting, because Trent is, like, you don't have to do this, don't do this. To which the guy at the bar responds to, I have to. This is how he's written me. Yeah. Which is such an interesting idea. Um, So... Trent is out of there. He like throws up because obviously that's quite something quite graphic and horrible to see. You don't see it happen. We don't see it happen. Mm-hmm. We just kind of hear the noise. We can see his hands. We don't yeah, actually yeah. see the gunshot. The gunshot or the blood. Yeah. And he like throws up in the road and he draws the attention of all of the townspeople and Styles and all of the townspeople now have started to their faces have started to change. Their bodies are slowly kind of starting to morph, like they're walking like at odd angles and things like this. So Styles gets up close and personal with him and punches him, and then he punches her in the face and knocks knocks her out, chucks mm. <laughs> her into the car, gets in himself, and he's like, "Right, we're out of here." Slams the door, puts his hand on the steering wheel, goes to get the key. Fucking key's not there. Shock horror, but guess who does have the key? So it's fine. Styles. It's in her mouth, isn't it? Oh no, she's holding it, and he's all like, "Give me the keys." So she swallows them. Yeah, and he like puts his arm, like he goes like elbow deep. In yeah, he fucking mouth. elbows her in the face. Oh yeah, he puts his hand in her mouth trying to get them out. And then when he very, can't very do that, he elbows her in the face to knock her out again, and then gets a screwdriver and. Basically, Jimmy's the car mm-hmm. into working. Yeah. And he's off. Turns the car around, heads the other way, back down creepy highway number one. Sees the old man on the bike again. Still cycling out there in the wilds. Um, and he crashes into him. He stops on the highway for some reason. Oh, no, he sees the guy. He stops on the highway and he gets out of the car and then as he gets out of the car, Linda has awoken. She has awoken. The sleeper has awoken. The sleeper has awoken. And this is one of my favourite practical effects in this film. Because it's really well fucking done. Mm-hmm. So she gets out of the car. Her he- She's in crab position. Oh yeah, man. This fucking far. But her off. head is the wrong way round. Mm-hmm. So it's facing up when it should be facing down. And she's like crab crawling towards him. She then twists her body yeah. round. Nope, nope, nope. And is like chasing him on all fours. I was not a fan of this. The practical effect on this is so good because they use the contortionist and then I think a mask of the actress's face. Mm-hmm. And it's so well done. And the sound effects they use as well, like the creaking and cracking yeah. for the bones. The, it's an amazing practical effect. If you haven't seen this film and have no interest in watching this film, just watch that scene just for the practical effect mm-hmm. alone because it is fucking amazing. And it is it feels like something so far ahead of its time because it looks really hyper-realistic. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, but that is enough for Trent. <laughs> Trent is like, no, fuck this. I'm gone. Hops back in the car, fucking pounds it down the highway and ends up back in town. Nearly runs in, he, he sees the group of people, goes, nope. Rewind reverses the car, goes back down the highway, ends up back in town. Goes, nope. Reverses the car, back up the highway, ends up back in town. And at this point he makes the sensible decision of he goes, fuck it, I'm just going to plough through the lot of them. So that's what he does, he puts his foot down, ploughs, and then as he hits, as the last person like moves out of the way, Linda is there, Styles, and he fucking swerves. Dude, just fucking drive through her. Like, yeah. legitimately just drive through her. Now he swerves and smashes the fucking car into another car. He's a dickhead. <sighs> he wakes up inside a confessions box. Like, in the confessional booth at church. And he has an interaction with Sutter Kane. And basically... Sutter Kane, they have another discussion in regards to reality and what reality is, which is a long running theme in this film is what is actual actually reality. Um, and I'm pretty sure Trent says his books are shit. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's like, nah, your books are shit, mate. Fucking rather read King in it, and uh, he does not like that, and Kane does not like King pissed off so he takes Trent into his little lair with the door holding back all the other go- elder yeah, gods yeah so like this this was this isn't just me is it that when they're in this fucking room that Caden's talking to me yeah this like fucking gothic mansion type yeah. church thing the door behind him looks like it's flowing like water yeah. right? it looks, it it's very, moving yeah it's like Pulsing yeah, because yeah. it's the it's the old, it's the elder gods trying to get out. Mm-hmm. Fucking want out, and I get it. I get it. It's gonna be boring stuff behind that door. Um, so he gives Trent the finished manuscript, and he's like, "You are going to take this back to the real world." And Trent's he like, "Gives it to him in a black briefcase." In a black briefcase, Trent's like, mm, "Nah," and he's like, "No, I have written it. You will do it." And then he heads to the door, and he. So originally there was supposed to be like a devouring of the town, but they didn't have the special effects budget for it. So he rips himself open and as he pulls himself open, it turns into book pages. Yeah. It's a really interesting way to like end your character of him like pulling apart himself to reveal the book inside him. And he creates a, a tear into the Elder Gods world. And he's Trent is supposed to be heading off down that hallway with the briefcase. Not doing that. He leans over. He's like looking into the the depths of like the beyond. And as he's doing it, Styles is reading the pages from the book that are literally explaining what is happening because yeah. we can't see. So we're looking at Trent's face, so we can't see what's happening beyond the void. But they have this... It's a really smart way of doing it, because they obviously don't have the budget to show you the world beyond. So you have... Styles basically saying, like, 
him, him like leaning over the edge and you can see the creatures writhing and climbing below. Mm -hmm. And it's really descriptive. It's a really smart way of doing it in which you can imagine what he can see, but you never actually see it yourself. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's a really <coughs> smart way of getting around that budget of having her narrate the story to us. Um, so he goes, you know what? Fuck this. Goes, he gets the briefcase off of Styles, and he's like, you need, you should come with me. Like, you can come with me. We'll escape together. And she's like, no. I know how the story ends. Yeah. Because she's seen the end of the book at this point. So he goes, pegging it down this hallway to try and escape the eldritch horrors clambering through the pool. And we get a shot of kind of vaguely the horrors. You see them slowly moving through the portal, but not really a clear shot. And then you see the large trunk, like, leg of one of them. Yeah. It's a really, like, again, they, they do it in a way in which they don't really have to expand too much budget, yet you still get an idea of what is coming. Mm -hmm. It's so fucking smart. I have so much, I've really enjoyed this, doing this movie. So he escapes out through the, the portal doorway gateway back into the real world. And he's on the, on, on a road... He dropped the briefcase and he goes ambling off and he sees a kid on a bike and he's like, is there a Hobbs end near here? The kid's like, never heard of it. It's the paper boy, isn't it? It's the paper boy. Paid, paid by Hayden Christensen. Paid by Hayden Christensen. And he asks where the highway is and he's like, he's like oh, we'll just keep walking in a straight line. The interesting thing about this is that little kid is the teenager and the old man. Yeah. Because you get a shot... At the very first time you see the teenager, you get a shot of his bike wheels with the Joker cards <coughs> in the wheels. Yeah. And then when you meet the paperboy, the first shot you get of him is of his bike with the Joker cards in the wheels. So this little boy is the teenager, elderly man, an ancient old dude you see riding his bike throughout the entire yeah. film over and over again. Which is really cool. And I like that they kind of created... He he obviously like ends ends up stuck on the doorway between the two worlds. So he's almost like a gatekeeper, isn't he? A little bit, yeah. Trent heads back to the city, gets on a bus, and uh, he has a nightmare on the bus. I can't. Why can't I say that like a normal person? Um, of Kane sat next to him and um i don't really remember what words are exchanged here but basically kane kind of ends it with a going did i never tell you my favorite color was blue yeah and then the screen is like saturated and then blue. the screen is saturated blue and also interestingly enough i realized this when he said it is all of the characters you see earlier in the film that are obviously being controlled by kane their eyes burst their splits. They have like two full irises, mm -hmm. but their eyes are crystalline blue. Yeah. So it's like a it's like a, the hint that like they are being yeah. controlled by Kane's books. And but he ends up getting woken up again, double wake up yet again, by the bus driver and the old lady sat next to him, and they're like, "It was just a nightmare, sweetheart. You're fine. Don't worry about it." So he heads off to the book publishers and he's trying to explain to the guy who hired him 
like the whole like you know um styles like things happen to styles and the guy who'd hired him is like i don't know what you're about i sent you on your own there is no styles she never existed yeah which is weird yeah and then he says um i said something about never delivering the book he's like i destroyed the manuscript i like it will never see the light of day to which the publisher re- responds going you delivered it to me like, three yeah. months ago yeah and, and he he's says, like, the book's been published for seven weeks and the movie's out in a month. Yeah. And Trent's like, you need to destroy it. You need to stop publication. You need to stop it now. And he's like, why would I do that? The, the movie's out in a month. Mm. So Trent heads off down <clears throat> into town and he walks past a bookshop or walks to a bookshop where they're giving out, hand, like selling the copies of the book. And this is also a really interesting moment because a bloke walks out of the bookshop holding the book and his eyes are bleeding, which was what happened to Styles earlier yeah. when she read it. And he gets an axe in the head, courtesy of Trent. Yeah, because Trent's now looking like how the agent was looking at the beginning of the book. He's dishevelled, he's got like a brown trench coat on, he's got the axe. Yeah. And he's also looking like he looks when we first meet him. Um, but the the guy whose head he bashes in is the guy who speaks to him in the bookshop at the beginning of the film and says he can see you. Yeah. So so really, there's so many characters that pop up again and again, Mm -hmm. but in very different situations. So this is how he ends up in the asylum. Murders a guy in cold blood with an axe in broad daylight. So he's kind of finished telling his story at this point. And... uh, Dr. Ren doesn't really believe him. He's like, that sounds like bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's all in your head. No. And he says this to the doctor as well. So as far as we're concerned, Trent is staying in that asylum. He's There's definitely... he. Yeah. He's not all there. So later that evening, Trent is sat rocking himself in his padded cell. And... He starts hearing gunshots and screams from outside the doors. And, like, the doors are kind of getting caved in. There's screams and the shadows are moving. It looks like people are getting attacked. Um, when the day dawns and the light comes, um, he realises his cell door is open. Yeah. He pulls it open and there is <coughs> blood and books yeah. everywhere. Something went very, very wrong. So he leaves the asylum... And as he's leaving, you can hear like a radio broadcast and um, basically saying that like a state of emergency has been announced and that there are monsters roaming the streets, killing people. Uh, there's not a lot of people left out in the real world. Um, so he leaves the asylum, heads down back into town, heads to the movie theatre where he sees they are showing In the Mouth of Madness. Starring... John Trent. John Trent. And then I think... Oh, you can't tell on the actual film itself, but I read online the actual movie poster in the box says starring, and then it's got all the characters from the film, and then it says directed by John Carpenter, written by whatever his name was, and it's all of the actual nice people who worked on this film. Um, so he heads into the cinema to sit and watch In the Mouth of Madness, yeah. and you get kind of a cut 
shot of like loads of different clips that we have seen earlier in the film. Yeah. And he is laughing and crying and then the movie ends. Yeah. That's it. So how did the ending translate for you, babe? I don't really know, to be honest. Yeah? Yeah, like I don't really I don't really understand the ending. So I don't know if this is right and I don't know if this is how it's supposed to be read because I don't think there's anything online about what the ending actually means or anything like that. But I thought watching it that he realised that he was a character in a book the entire time. Right. So none of this is real. It is all... It is all actually a story within a book. Mm -hmm. And the ending is him realising that he has been a character in this book this entire time and it's none of this is real. Right. Uh, That would make sense. I mean, yeah. Now that you've said it. It's only because of how much the film deals with the idea of reality Mm -hmm. that made me think, well, it would make sense that he wasn't actually real anyway. None of this is the real Mm -hmm. world. It is all happening within the book. I mean, I don't know if that's right, but that's how I read it. Yeah, I mean that would make sense. But yeah, I don't really, I don't really know how, because it ends in a really like a movie within a movie sort of ending, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, what did what did you think of it? I really, really fucking enjoyed this film. Yeah, big up John Carpenter. It is so much fun, <laughs> and it is one of those movies that does make you really think about. The idea of reality and what is real and what isn't. Yeah. Because, like, you you hear people say, you know, how do we know that we're real? Like, how do you know that we're not just in a game of The Sims or in a TV show? Um, And it is really interesting to see that idea of, like, what if we were all unaware that we were in fact actually fictional characters. Mm Kind of like The Matrix. Kind of like The Matrix. There's been a few takes on this as well um, that I've seen. Um, The idea of like finding out that you're fictional Mm -hmm. is really interesting. I mean, uh, Deadpool is an excellent example of that because he's fully aware that he's a fictional character inside a comic book. And there's a really great Korean show called Extraordinary You which deals with like... um, a girl who realises that she's actually, like, a minor character inside a manga. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the idea of all that W2 Worlds as well <coughs> is based on a, a comic yeah. book character, finding out that he's a comic book character. Um, and it's a really interesting premise. And, like, a part of me thinks that ending and the idea of what the film is about is why this didn't do so well to begin with, because it's such a meta concept yeah. of, like... What if none of this is real? Mm-hmm. What if we're all fictional characters? Yeah. Um. But I fucking loved it. I thought it was such a smart movie. And it is way beyond before its time. Mm-hmm. This movie was made far too early. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, it it's just... it's And it's... It's a fun film to watch because you spend so much of the film questioning what you're seeing. Once you realise that things aren't always what they seem... Yeah. And you know what's really interesting, actually? Because we missed a scene. I said I'd come back and talk about it later. So at the beginning of the film, you, you, he, he sees what is behind that poster and you don't. Mm-hmm. 
when you get to the end of the film, he rips away the poster and you see what was actually behind the, the poster. And it's poster. the In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, I don't know if it's a film poster, but it's the In the Mouth of Madness poster film or book because the book has yeah. the same cover. And it's him. Yeah. So this is part of where my idea of him being a fictional character the whole time plays into it. Because obviously he saw his own face behind that poster at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then you watch his reactions throughout the movie. Like he doesn't react when he sees that cop beating the graffiti artist. He doesn't react to so many things that as a normal person would cause quite an adverse reaction and quite an Mm -hmm. interesting reaction. He kind of is very passive about everything that happens. I did think kind of when he shows up at the end at the bookstore when they've got this the like signing for it or whatever it is like the they're selling there, the book. The picture that's in the window on the poster I thought looked like Samuel. yeah, it's him. Yeah. So it's his character. Yeah. Is on the cover of the book and on the movie poster. It's on all of the merchandising for it. So his reactions throughout the film become. Not more understandable, but you you see that they drop the thread of him not being a real person. Yeah. So many times because his reactions to everything that happened are so... They're the kind of reactions a character in a book would have. And you're sat there going, really, you'd react like that? Yeah. And it's almost like... It's done on purpose. He's reacting how he's written. How he's written to react. Exactly. And I feel like that is done on purpose because it wasn't until the end of the movie that I went... Oh, hang on the hang the fuck on a second. All of this makes so much more sense now. Because he was doing everything how he was written to do yeah. it. He's not reacting to things. He's following a set script. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking smart. Yeah. And there's only there's only one other time like after this when John Carpenter kind of goes to the idea of like altered realities and that is with the ward mm. um because everything after this movie is pretty straightforward like he, he does the remake of the village of the damned um vampires is a pretty straightforward film so is ghost of mars i mean escape from la is just a sequel to escape from new york but he does kind of a similar thing in like in the ward where you've got like the ward is kind of like a sucker punch type mm-hmm. there's girls in an insane asylum and maybe one of them's a ghost one of them's been there all along sort of jobby uh, it's been a while since I, I it came out 11 years ago and i've only seen it once but it's mm-hmm. kind of that idea of are you real are you a ghost are you the here like are you the the shutter island thing of spoiler alert if you haven't seen shutter island i haven't seen shutter island <laughs> it's the whole like is the missing person the, the like because you know spoilers for Shutter Island. You know in Shutter Island. I know, I know how yeah. it ends because someone ruined it and for me already. And that's kind of like the ward. It's that kind of are you real or are you not real sort of thing. So he does kind of play with a similar theme how he ended his career or up to this point he's ended his career. But yeah, now that you said it, I'm actually thinking about it a little bit more and it makes a lot more sense because that's why when I was watching it, I was, I was really confused watching it because I was like at some point they are going to explain what this is. Mm. And then I was like, but I, I feel like I've missed a lot of those things. And it's kind of like, it's because he does it so subtly. Yeah. It is that kind of like David Lynch, Wes Craven, dream-like, <laughs> because he blurs the lines of reality so much, yeah, so well. 
Yeah. You don't really know whether yeah, you're in the real world or not half the time. But yeah, there are so many points in this book and film and you look back on it, like you look back on him seeing, because he sees behind the poster at the very beginning of the film. So he sees his face on the poster for a book that's not released yet. Yeah. At the very beginning of the film. We don't see it, but he does. And it's like at the end, when you see him kill the kid who earlier in the film had already started to go insane. Yeah. But he's perfectly fine and healthy at the end of the movie. Mm. Yeah. But that'll be because there's only so many different NPCs. Yeah. Yeah. For the thing that they just reuse a different one mm-hmm. with a like similar ex like because you know those characters you get in books who have like a really vague description of like a young gentleman with brown hair yeah so he is like the young gentleman with brown hair NPC and they use he gets used as a standing over and over and over again mm. and like you think about all of those things they do and it. It's such a smart fucking film. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the problem of why this didn't do so well to begin with. It's because if you're not paying really close attention to the shit that is going down in this film, and if you don't follow those little tiny threads you can pull at, yeah. it kind of ends on a really like weird, like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Because it... It's a really fucking smart movie. Yeah, and this is what I mean about it being like John Carpenter's last great film. This it's... is the last time he like really swung for the fences and was like, I'm going to do something fucking that's going to knock people's dicks off, basically. It's so well done. And it's one of those movies... Like, I have a massive problem with a lot of movies that have massive plot twists at the end. Mm. Because... And this is not a, a bad mouth on any specific person or any specific director or writer. I feel like it's it's a totally a dig at M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I've not seen enough of his work, really, yeah. for this to be a dig at Shyamalan. But one problem I have with a lot of films that end kind of like this is that they think they're being really smart by adding in this last big twist. Mm. But the problem you have with a lot of these kind of films is that they don't put in the little threads throughout the film that make that ending make sense do you know what i mean like another great example of if spoilers now for the film the others if you haven't seen it is another great example of a really big plot twist Mm. done well because again there's so many little tiny things you won't notice until you sit at the end and you think about all of the stuff that happened throughout the film and you can start tugging at these tiny little loose threads of plot. Mm. And you're like, oh shit, yeah. Like You can see it weaved into the story. And the others is very similar to this in that way. If they do such a great job of weaving yeah. the ending of this film into the very beginning of the film. And you're following that thread the yeah. whole way through. And again... I, I know you haven't seen it, I've mentioned it a lot in this episode. It's very similar to, like, the Magnus Archives. It's very similar. Like, there's a thread that starts at the very first episode mm-hmm. that by the time you hit season five of this podcast, you're, like, pulling at these little strings yeah. that have been dropped for the last five fucking seasons. And that's what's beautiful about this movie and what makes it such a good film. And if anyone hasn't seen it and they've sat and listened to this podcast without seeing it, why? Because mm. you've ruined it for yourself now. But even though you've ruined it for yourself, like, you know how it ends. 
I would suggest going and watching it anyway, just to see if you can find those. Like, I'd love to sit and watch it again just to see if I can find those tiny little threads to start pulling at. Yeah. Now I know how it ends. And I think that's a beautiful thing with this film. And again, it's a problem I have with a lot of films that have big twists is you know what the twist is and you never need to see the film again because it's been ruined for you. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this, I would sit and watch it again and again and again to try and find all of those little hints that get dropped throughout this entire film that lead yeah. up to that twist because there are so many. Can you can you tell I really enjoyed this yeah. film? <laughs> you'll hear, you'll generally, I feel like it's one of those things you generally know if I enjoy a film because I get really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I love this. Score? Uh, I'm going to give it... Do you know what? Do you know what? I'm going to give it a five out of five. I think that's unheard of. I don't think I've given anything a five out of five. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods you did. Oh, I mean, it's fucking Cabin in the Woods, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I'd probably give it a four. Yeah? Yeah, only because I feel like I didn't understand it enough the first time I watched it. So, like, I'd have to rewatch it to know how I fully feel about it. Mm. Um, So... But yeah, I would give it a four. But so yeah, that's that's our thoughts on In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter. Um, Carpenter is going to come up a couple more times later on in the year. We are covering a couple more John Carpenter movies later on in the year. Um, I'm not telling you which ones yet, um, but we are covering a couple of his more well-known ones. I'm pretty sure we've mentioned what one of them is anyway. Yeah, probably. But um, yeah, so. Next week, well, on Friday, so this is, this is we are on the May the 31st today. On Friday, we will have, so in a four days time, we're going to have our Quiet Place special, looking at Quiet Place 1 and 2. I will, I will let you know now, obviously, when this airs, we will be seeing it today. Because um, uh, cinemas over in the UK are doing preview screenings. Or well, hopefully we'll be seeing it Well, today. this will be going out on the the quiet place episode will be going out on the 4th of june which is when it will be widely released in the uk it came out three days ago in america on the 28th for memorial day weekend it will be going out wide on the official uk release date which is the 4th of june and it will be a spoiler episode for quiet place one and two so if you are planning to if you haven't seen a preview of it and you are planning to see it opening weekend maybe Give it a couple of days before you listen to this and then come, well, listen to the Quiet Place episode and then come back and listen to it. And then on the Monday, so a week from now, back to regularly scheduled programming because the Quiet Place one is a bonus episode. We will be looking at the Keanu Reeves driven Hellblazer comic book adaptation, Constantine. Yeah, which I've never seen. I've seen like two episodes of that TV show. Mm-hmm. Never seen the film. So, so yeah. We'll be back next week. Well, we'll be back on Friday with our Quiet Place episode. And then we'll be back next week with... I'm going to do the entire Quiet Place episode in ASMR. Oh, please don't. (laughs) Um, But yeah, as always, I've been Simon. I've been Lee. Sorry, I just uh, really fucking went out there, did I? uh, Yeah, come find us on the usual places. S-I-M-A-H-F pod on Twitter. So I'm a horror fan, Instagram and Tumblr, and we'll see you next time. Bye.